I was told last week that if I come too close, I have a halo. Is that, do I have a halo? Should I go back a bit? I really don't have a halo, it's just the light that comes through, but um, I, don't, I think I have a realistic view of myself. Um, we've been journeying through Luke for quite a long time now. And if you're new to the journey, let me just recap for you. Chapters 1 to 9, we're looking at Luke's gospel as a whole. Very quickly, it really has to do with the mind. It really has to do with our minds. Luke has created an orderly account. He's researched very carefully. We can see that from the first few chapters of his gospel. And he really wants to tell us about Jesus' identity. This is who Jesus is. This is his origins. This is his family tree. This is his parents. This is a little window into what he did as a child. It's the first nine chapters. It's to do with the mind. The second nine chapters, that's nine through 18. It has to do with our will. It has to do with our will. If the first nine chapters are to do with the mind, this is Jesus' identity. Chapters 9 through 18, that has to do with the will. This is what it means, says Luke. If you are to be a follower of Jesus, this is the behavior that will be exhibited as God goes to work in your life by his spirit. This is what you won't do. This is what you will do. That's chapter 9 through 18. It's to do with the mind. It's to do with the will. And as we get to this last section that begins today at chapter 19, verse 28, it really has to do with the heart. 19 through to the end of Luke's gospel is not so much communicating Jesus' identity. That's been done already. It's not so much to do with the will, how you behave, the spirit-empowered life. That's the central section of the book. Luke now wants us to, uh, to see who Jesus is. He wants us to encounter him afresh. He wants us to be struck, not in the mind or the will, but by the heart. And so he takes all the doctrines that were covered in the central section, like uh, sin, like judgment, like holiness, like purity, but he repackages them for a, a, a second time, as it were, and focuses in more and more on Jesus. It's as if they go from being slightly remote to being real and cast iron. That's uh, where we're heading in chapters 19 through to 25. He tells us as we journey with Jesus now slowly from the Kidron Valley through to Calvary, this is what the doctrines of salvation and justice and sin, this is what they look like in the most vivid way. And as we journey to Jerusalem now, chapter 19, verse 28, you can read it in your Bible or on your sheet, but please have it on your lap. It's called the triumphal entry, and it's about one thing. It tells us that Jesus is king. It's the one thing we've been singing about. It's the one thing at the center of the passage. It's really the message of the whole Bible, that God is king, that God is king. It says it right at the center, Jesus is king, verse 36. It's the first thing I want us to look at. Verse 36, here is Jesus' identity boiled down to one clause, one phrase. This is his identity. In the uh, very middle of the passage, he's riding on this little horse. Verse 38, people throw their cloaks down on the floor. They throw it on the, the back of the horse, this little colt, this unridden donkey. And they cry out, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes. In the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Just like the angels sang at the beginning of Luke's gospel. But here, this quote, this is not an accidental phrase from the disciples as they throng the way to Jerusalem. This is a quote. This is a citation from Psalm 
118 verse 26. This is the disciples crying out a word of prophecy, if you like, in a way. They're saying, this is the Davidic king. This is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited king that we are longing for and hoping for. God has answered his promise. He's not a king. He's the king. He's not a maybe king. He's the ultimate king. He's not a one of many king. He's the king by himself. He's the king to the max. And this is so important if you had a Jewish worldview that God would send a king. God would send a king like David, not a resurrected David, but David's greatest son would come. He would right everything that was wrong. He would return the world to how it was under David's rule when all things were well, where enemies were, were laid to rest, when there was peace and prosperity. That was all under King David's reign. But the Old Testament prophets said, you know what? There is a greater David who will come. There is David's greatest son. And he will come and he will rule and reign like David did, but globally, completely, perfectly. There will be a king who comes back. But this longing is not just limited to Jewish literature. It's not just limited to the Old Testament. Journey with me to the library. You can pick off Tolkien's greatest work. The Lord of the Rings. And you can find out about this shady, uh, shadowy ranger from the north. The true heir of Gondor. Aragorn. One who would come with a sword strapped to his side. With hairs coming out the top of his shirt. A great, mighty, muscular figure. Who would defeat enemy forces. Who would crush the forces of Saruman. And all the evils of the world would be driven out. And then you go along a few more uh, bookshelves and you pick up the great work of C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you read of a king, a king who's whispered about, a king whose authority is never in danger, Aslan. Aslan, the king who would come, that lovely, good, but all-powerful lion who would come back and restore order, who would break the spell of Narnia where it's always winter and never Christmas. There was one of our children this morning, they're singing Christmas songs already. They love singing it. We've got John Denver, who, uh, John Denver, I shouldn't admit this, John Denver's Christmas favourites. We have it played relentlessly. And here's the real truth if you're listening carefully. That was once my CD. We'd better move on. So you've got the Lord of the Rings, you've got Narnia. But then you can go to Disney. It's not just Jewish literature. We all long for a king. You could go to the Lion King and you read about this prince that is uh, banished. Off goes the little prince Pumba and Simba. And off they go by the evil scar. But he returns. And he brings order back to the realm of Disney. You could go to Norwegian legends. You could go to Beowulf. And in Beowulf it speaks of the king who would come and muster all his strength. And slay the dragon. This hope is not just bound in Jewish literature, friends. It's everywhere. Now why is it everywhere? Because it's in our hearts. And why is it in our hearts of a king who would come? Because it's there right from the beginning of the Bible. Right in the beginning of the Bible, when the world is perfect, when God is known and enjoyed, when he walks in the cool of the day, when he speaks to his creation, when there is perfection that we will never know this side of heaven, but we will one day. 
there is a nuclear bomb that goes off throughout all creation called sin. And there is enmity, and there is brokenness, and there is tears, and there is shame, and there is banishment, and there is brokenness. But there's also a word of hope. When the last time we hear God's voice spoken before an intermediary or a priest or a prophet is needed, and God says, one day someone will come. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He will crush his head. Right there at the beginning of the Bible, we have a promise of hope, of a king who will come, a king who will return, who will one day take on the serpent and win, who will crush his head, who will drive out the effects of sin, who will defeat death, who will conquer evil. There will be a battle unto death, but he will win. It will cost him everything, but he will win. It's hope in the midst of despair. And all these stories that we have in our culture and different cultures around the world are all echoes, they're all shadows of the greatest story ever told. That's what C.S. Lewis said. In one of his essays, I can't remember the name, he says something like this. Monarchy, kingships, kings and queens. Monarchy is easily debunked. The actual record of kings is abysmal, full of tyranny, Yet, where we are forbidden to honour a king, we will honour millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead, even famous gangsters. What Lewis is saying so helpfully is that culturally we've gotten rid of lots of kings, lots of queens have been driven out from our culture. But where that happens, the longing to worship a king still exists. And if we don't worship a king or worship a queen, we'll worship someone else. We'll worship heroes from Rio who return with gold around their necks. We will worship or give undue honour to or too much honour to uh, war heroes, the big rise of help for heroes. We'll worship uh, sports stars or music celebrities. Why? Because there's a longing in our hearts to worship the king. And if we don't worship him, Luke says, we will worship someone else. That's why it's in all our stories, it's in all our films, because it's in all our hearts. It's a memory trace of the king who would come and crush the head of the serpent. The Norwegians have nearly got it right. Not quite a dragon, it's a serpent. And it speaks of King Jesus. And here's Luke in Luke 19 saying, the king has come. The king is riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It says there in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes that's what the gospel is all about the reason you need to crown someone or something is because each one of us has a king in our lives you may not be a Christian here this morning it's great to see you but if you are not worshipping King Jesus you will be worshipping someone else you will be taking off the crown upon your head and throwing it at the feet of someone you will be taking off the uh, metaphorical cloak off your back and laying it at the donkey of someone or laying it on the back of a colt for someone. We all have kings in our lives, and you will either have this king or you'll have another one, but you will have one. And Luke is showing us, this is the king you really seek, and his name is Jesus. He's the ultimate king. He's the true king. He's the king to which all the other ones point, and the king has come. Let's move on. Verse 30. Not only is Jesus the king, 
Not only is he not a king, the king, he's the paradoxical king. He's a paradoxical king. What do I mean? Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. He says to his disciples, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here to me. Jesus here is not seeking to come in by the side door. He's not coming in by the back door. He's not coming in via a helicopter. He's doing something very intentional, very deliberate, and making a huge claim. The only people who rode into cities were kings. You might be on the back of a war horse if you were a military conquering king. You might be on the back of a donkey if you've defeated your enemies already. But the only people who rode into cities were kings. Kings would ride in for their coronation. Kings would ride in after a great battle. Kings would ride in only to conquer cities. And so when Jesus says, I'm not going to walk these last two miles as we go down into the Kidron Valley and up to Jerusalem, I'm not going to walk, I'm going to ride. He's making a huge intentional claim. Verse 37. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Here are the disciples, and they're saying, this is what we've been waiting for. We're going to bang some heads together. We're going to defeat those ghastly Romans like uh, Zacchaeus and his followers. We're going to do away with these people that have put us under their bootstraps for years. This is what we've come for. This is what we've signed up for. This is what we've hoped for. We've seen his power. Notice verse 37. They've seen the miracles. They know his words. They've seen the effects of his words as he's stilled the the raging sea, as he's driven out evil spirits from demon-possessed people. They've seen his miracles. And so they think that Jesus is coming in to overthrow the Romans. But he's a paradoxical king. Jesus says, I'm going to ride, but I want to ride on a colt that no one's ridden on before. It's a very intentional choice. On one hand, he's the king, but on the other hand, he's riding a little colt. That's a paradox. On one hand, he's a high king, but on the other hand, he looks like a very weak king. On one hand, he's got power, but on the other hand, he looks very vulnerable. It's highness, a heightness, a loftiness, but he's also accessible. Why? Why is Jesus coming on a cult? Why not a war horse? If Jesus were coming to deliver his disciples and the Jewish people from the Romans, then he would come in on a war horse. But he's not. He's coming on a cult because there's a far greater enemy that they face than we face. I'm coming to deliver you. It says powerful but lowly Jesus. It says high but vulnerable Jesus from your greater enemy, from sin and from death itself. I'm coming to show you a power that you've never seen before. A power cloaked in humility. A power cloaked in weakness. A power that will be most clearly seen in sacrificial service. That's true power, as Jesus will show. There's a paradoxical nature to his kingship. He's high and lifted up, but he's lowly and humble. He's great, so that the wind and waves obey him. And yet he's on the back of a colt that no one's ridden before. Why? Why a paradoxical king? Look at verse 45. All of the Gospels say this. Where is Jesus making a beeline to? This king is not going to the powers of the day. 
He's heading straight for the temple in Jerusalem. Every gospel shows this. Jesus goes straight to the temple. And what did he do? He began to drive out those who sold animals there. This is not the first time that Jesus has been to the temple. If you remember back from the start of Luke's gospel and the start of our journey into Luke's gospel, all the way back into Luke chapter 2 was the first time that Jesus went into the temple. A father, his earthly father, Joseph, would take Jesus into the temple when he was 12 years old. It wasn't time for bar mitzvah, but it was time as a 12-year-old boy for a coming-of-age ceremony, if you like. Every culture has it, and in the Jewish culture, a 12-year-old boy would be taken to the temple for the first time. He'd also be signed up for an apprenticeship course, as a good idea, so he'd become a carpenter. But as his earthly father, as Joseph took him to the temple in Jerusalem, he would be orienting him for the first time, saying, this is where the animal sacrifices are given. This is the priest who intercedes on behalf of humankind for the sins of the world, for the sins of the people, rather. So this is not the first time that Jesus has been to the temple. But it's very interesting that as Joseph and as Mary took the young boy Jesus around the temple, and then as they packed their bags to journey back home, as they made the journey away from the temple, they realized that Jesus wasn't there. And the first words we have recorded in the whole Gospel of Luke from the lips of Jesus are these. When they realized that Jesus is not in the back seat, of their first century Zephira, as he's gone missing, as they about turn and go back to Jerusalem, what does Jesus say when they find him in the temple? Chapter 2. I must be about my father's business, says Jesus. It's the first words we have recorded from the lips of Jesus. It must be significant. This is why I came to earth, mum, as she asked the question. And just as his earthly father had spoken to Jesus to say, this is how it works, I'm sure at that point, in all probability, Jesus' heavenly father also spoke to him. You see this priest, God may have said to his son, you're the true priest. You see these animal sacrifices, my son, you will be the ultimate sacrifice. Do you see these four walls where people come and worship me? My son, you are going to be not just the ultimate priest, not the ultimate sacrifice, you're going to be the temple as well. You're to be about my father's business. You're to be about the work of salvation that all these symbols and types and shadows point to. You will be the sacrifice that all of these point to, my son. You are the priest who will mediate my presence. You are the temple that all these... Uh, people worship at in part, you will be the temple perfectly. That's why in verse 45, as he comes in and sees what the temple's become, he's filled with rage. He turns them over. This is not how my father wanted it to be. You are not attending to my father's business. He's wept over Jerusalem. And now he is enraged with a zeal for his father's glory that they're not attending to. He throws over the tables. He casts out and drives out the animals. Because the true temple has come. The old way of meeting God is no longer there. It's no longer needed. This is why I came. I must be about my father's business. I am the temple. I'm the ultimate priest. I'm the ultimate sacrifice. How is that possible? Only if you lay your sins on me. Do you see this paradoxical nature? He's the king of the whole universe. 
And yet he's the king who came on a colt to the temple. He doesn't look very high and lifted up. He doesn't look very powerful. But he comes to the temple saying, everything here points to me. Put it this way. The gospel says, if sin is me and you, if sin is putting ourselves in the rightful place of the king, I want to be in charge. Salvation, salvation then must be the king putting himself in the place of the servants. If sin is us putting ourselves in the place of the king, then salvation must only be possible by the king putting himself in the place of the servants. That's what Jesus says he will do. He's the king. But he doesn't come to overthrow the Romans. He's come to pay for our sins and to defeat death itself. He's the actual king. He's the paradoxical king. But he's also, thirdly, he's a confrontational king. He's someone who confronts us. He's someone who confronts everybody who listens to his voice. Do you notice in verse 39, as we had it read by Alice, just how hot under the collar the Pharisees were getting? They're really agitated. The disciples cry out, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Here is the king, the king of the whole universe. And the Pharisees, the religious elite, are getting hot under the collar because they're confronted with his identity. It's this triumphal entry as the crowd are celebrating the king's entrance into Jerusalem. They don't quite understand who he is. But they get so hot under the collar, verse 39, that by the time we get to verse 47, they are planning to kill him. They've been confronted with the confrontational nature, the undeniability of who Jesus Christ is. What's Jesus doing? He's making not a small but a huge claim. I'm not a king. I'm the king. I am David's greatest son. This is my city. This is my world. It's not an arrogant claim. It's an appropriate claim because of who Jesus is and who he is alone. As Lewis said, he's making such a bold claim. He's either a lunatic, he's either a liar, or he's Lord. Or he is who he says he is. The claim that Jesus is making says, you need to crown me for who I am as king, or you need to reject me. You need to crown me for who I am, or you need to kill me. There's no middle ground. Once you see who Jesus is, you either crown him as Lord as your life, or you reject him. There are only two ways. It's not as if you come to church Sunday by Sunday in Epsom Primary School or Stamford Green just to get a bit more closer to Jesus. It's not as if you top up your religious insurance every time you come. You shouldn't be here for your own comfort. Or as nice as the coffee is and as good as Johnny is at playing the guitar. Once you see the king for who he is, you either bow your knee before him or you reject him. There are only two ways. Jesus wants to be the absolute centre of your life. He wants absolute and total authority over your life. There's no middle ground. You don't have a bit of Jesus in your life. Jesus says, I want all of your heart. I deserve all of your heart. Because I am alone and worthy. You crown me or you reject me. He won't come into your heart 
He won't come into your life. He won't come into a city as anything other than king because of who he is. There's been a lot written in recent years, especially by a man called Christian Smith, about how we have redefined who God is. We no longer, in large swathes of the church, believe the God of the Bible. We redefine him so he's a cosmic butler, so he serves our needs, so that he's a therapist who meets our heartaches. We don't like the language of bowing before the king anymore. We have uh, lost the language of obedience and holiness. We prefer uh, imminence and closeness rather than transcendence and distance and holiness. But here, Luke is saying to us, as he has from right from the beginning, Jesus Christ is king. He's not king over part of your life, he's king over all of it. He deserves your complete allegiance. He says, listen carefully, I can be your helper, I can be your healer. I can be your counsellor, I can be your friend. I can be your shepherd, I can be your brother. But not without being your king. Jesus is king of the whole world. Is he lord of your life? We saw it last week with Zacchaeus. He names him lord. No messing around. When you see who Jesus Christ is, is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he your Lord? Don't dabble with him. Crown him as Lord of your life. Or reject him. There are no middle ground. So what does it mean to be a Christian from this passage? I think it means this. It's paradoxical. Jesus is king. He's the paradoxical king. He's a confrontational king that leads to his death. A Christian is not someone who says, I can do it by myself. I can follow Jesus. A Christian is someone who lives out the paradox. A Christian is someone who says, I'm an absolute failure. I cannot do it. I need your help. That's a Christian. Someone who might look morally respectable on the outside, but when you get to know them, if they're honest enough, they can lay it all out there and say, I've messed up my life to a greater or lesser degree. But Jesus accepts me because of who he is, not because who I am. It's a paradox. You think you want to come on your own effort like everything else in the world. But Christianity turns it on its head and says you come in Jesus' strength alone. You rest in him alone. You trust in what he has done alone. And when you do that, Jesus' lordship begins to go to work in your life. You become to be more like Jesus. There are some of us who love a fight. I was watching a program this week on the SAS and uh, one of the guys who seems an absolutely normal, nice, gentle guy, he says, being a member of the SAS, you have to be unbelievably angry and aggressive at the shortest notice. You have to be able to flick a switch and be unbelievably aggressive just at the shortest notice. My wife could be in the SAS. Don't tell her that. (laughs) But seriously, some of us love a fight. Some of us have a trigger when we just love a fight. Some of us hate fighting. We're not confrontational at all. We're very, very gentle. It's an either-or thing. Notice how Jesus wept over Jerusalem, verse 41, and then he drove out with rage, I'm sure, a zeal for his Father's glory. He drove over tables. Some of us tend to be strong. Some of us tend to be weak. Some of us tend to be kind of uh, sweet, 
Some of us love fights, some of us hate them. But when Jesus goes to work in your life by his spirit, what you will will find to happen is that you will become strong, weak people. You'll become just and merciful. You'll become somebody that the world really needs, not someone of an extreme, someone of an integrity and a wholeness. And that's only possible when God goes to work by his spirit in your heart. Friends, the people in the world, the people of Epsom, need people just like this. People who are strong but weak. People who are humble. People who know the grace of God in their life. This is what Epsom really needs. It's people living under the power of the king. Have you crowned him in your life? Or have you taken that crown and crowned someone else? Let's uh, gather now around the table of the king as we celebrate communion together after I've prayed. Let's pray. Father, we think of that old hymn, that laying our crowns before him, lost in wonder, love and praise. Father, help us to be struck again by the fact that the king came and power was shown in weakness, greatness was shown in humility, glory was shown by bloody wounds on a cross. This is so paradoxical, it must be true, because it is. And please help us to live paradoxical lives of power under control, strength under self-control, tongues that also know No wrong word, but purity of speech, purity of action, and purity of mind. Help us to be inherently godly people, I pray, as your spirit goes to work in our lives. Amen.